I realized that I don't have anything to prove to anyone but myself. And it doesn't matter who kind of the audience is. Like I know inherently that I can capture their attention and use that for good. And that is, as I've met more women in the Asian community and other communities of color, that is not an assumption that all of us carry inside. Welcome to Rock the Boat. We're your hosts, Rusha Liu and Lin Guay. Together, we have candid conversations with Asian Americans who are challenging the status quo. We uncover stories about their upbringing, their relationship with family, Asian identity, and their work. In the past, we've interviewed Andrew Yang, Michelle Phan, and the Fung Bros. This season, we're featuring Asian Americans who have overcome challenges against all odds. Join us for our boldest season yet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rock the Boat. This week, we have Karen Mock on the show. Karen is the co-founder and chief operating officer of The Cosmos, which is a community dedicated to helping Asian women flourish and thrive. Today, the community reaches over 10,000 members in 10 hubs across the country. These include Boston, Chicago, Denver, LA, New York City, Seattle, and more. Over the summer, the Cosmos hosted a summit in Brooklyn, and it was the first of its kind, specifically because it was created for Asian women by Asian women. The summit included experiential art, workshops, speakers, and even a small business market for Asian women-made goods. I had the chance to meet Karen in Oakland a few months before the summit to hear a bit more about her personal story and what led her to start the Cosmos in the first place. We also talk about what it was like growing up Asian in the South, the many projects she dabbled in before the cosmos, mental health, this is a big one, and why it's important to create space for Asian women to openly talk about the topic, and the power of individual agency. Without further ado, here's Karen. Hi, I'm Karen Mock. I'm the co-founder and chief operating officer of the cosmos, which is a community for Asian women to flourish and thrive. So Karen and I actually share something in common. We are both Asians who grew up in the South. That's quite a rare breed, actually. Karen grew up in South Carolina, and I grew up in South Florida. I guess some would say that South Florida isn't really the South, but that's a topic for another day. Um, I'm currently recording this in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my parents now live. So either way, the South is definitely in my roots. So I was born in North Charleston, South Carolina. North Charleston is a small town. It's a population of less than 1.5% Asian. And I looked this up on Wikipedia because I just had to understand why I didn't see myself or anyone that looked like me besides my family growing up. My parents, uh, they're immigrants from Hong Kong. I often get asked, like, how did your family end up in South Carolina of all places where there is no Asian community? Uh, I've actually asked my parents this question. I always hope for like a romantic story about the American dream and a backyard and a fence, which we had. But it was more, I think my my parents just being able to find a job in South Carolina. My dad was a chemical engineer and this was his first job coming out of college. Both my parents were the ones who chose to do something different from every other member of their family. And that is a trait that I see in myself, but I think they haven't as openly reflected back to me. Like we were also the black sheep. We're the ones who left New York. We're the ones who chose to do something different with our lives. And uh, I have a lot of respect for that. I think this speaks to the immigrant experience in general. 
we often forget the full extent of the gamble our parents and previous generations took to move to a new country, leaving their family and everything that they know behind for a place where most people don't look like them. It's a really brave act. I remember in preschool, I saw my sister on TV. You know how like in elementary school, like kids have like their TV show and they film it and they do the news. I remember speaking out loud in Cantonese. I was four, so I was still just like working on the English and and all these kids just turned and looked at me and they're like, what did you say? And I was like, oh, oh, that's bad for me to like speak my native language. And a couple days later, when my mom dropped me off from school, I turned to her and I said, never speak to me in Cantonese in public ever again. And she tells me this story because it broke her heart. I know it broke her heart because she never let me forget that I did that to her. I was so deeply embarrassed, I think, of my family and my culture being different that I, at that time, didn't really have a filter for just wanting to reject it. And I always go back to that moment because it started the pattern of 18 years of rejecting my Asian identity. And uh, I have arrived at a point where I don't blame little Karen for what she did. She just wanted to fit in, she just wanted to belong, I think much like any kid does growing up. Didn't have the internet, you know, I'm a 90s kid, and so it wasn't exposure to like other Asian um, representation. I remember just wanting to like peel my skin off. Like I remember writing this in my diary and just like wanting to see like white underneath just so that I wouldn't be different and be made fun of for being different. It was very hard to, to have these feelings at home because my mom would say to me, she's like, you're 100% Chinese. Like there's no part of you that's American. And at school, you know, all I am is absorbing American culture, American ways of life, and I would come home and be forced to, like, immediately context switch. Karen certainly experienced a sense of feeling lost in the mix, unsure of where she and her voice had a place to fit in. She wasn't Black, she wasn't white, she was just different. And she and the kids at her school knew it. So in seventh grade, um, riding the school bus home, there were a few collection of boys in the back who started yelling chink at me. And I honestly did not know what that meant. I had never heard that word before. And my best friend in seventh grade did know what that meant. She was sitting next to me. And she started yelling at them, telling them to stop. And I was confused. I was like, why is this happening? Why is she trying to defend me? Why is this bad? And it got to the point, like such an escalated argument that the bus driver pulled the bus over inside the road and had to have a whole sit down with everyone on the bus to resolve the situation. And she was crying. I was confused and yet very embarrassed because I knew something bad was happening. And I got home and I I think I tried to ask my parents what had happened. And my parents tried to shield me so they didn't tell me. (laughs) Just just forget about it. Uh, But that was an incident where I distinctly remember. And then uh, there are other incidents where my house would get egged. I didn't know by who, but it was difficult because my mom, she's Buddhist and she would have like an altar outside, like at our front door and then by the uh, garage. And so uh, she was always really careful not to pray when there were other people around who could watch her. But I think there was a recognition, you know, that we were the Asian family in the neighborhood. So that was hurtful. And I remember just my dad, like, washing off the egg, like, silently, and me just feeling really sad and embarrassed for them. Recently, when I went home, like, last year, 
My dad and I were just like at Walmart, like in the cake aisle, like getting some pie crust. And this woman just like walked up to this old white woman and she was just like, I don't think Asian people like eat cake. And it was, it wasn't like a, you know, an aggressive act of racism, but it was definitely a moment where I was like, this wouldn't happen in like California. This wouldn't happen in other parts of the world, but little Microaggressions like that still happen to my family. This racism wasn't only directed towards her as an Asian American. When we think about the South and race in general, here in the U.S., I think it's often seen as an African American struggle. With the long history of deeply embedded racism in the South, Karen witnessed the inequalities imposed upon Black communities inequalities that weren't necessarily the same as the ones she experienced as an Asian American. Nonetheless, they were inequalities she knew were oppressive and something to stand against. I'm grateful for growing up in the South because my socialization with race began very early, but not to myself. It really began as kind of a lens into another racial dynamic. Um, And then only, honestly, after college did I start to understand how Asian American racial politics fits into the bigger black and white racial dynamic. I find it very interesting that my own desire to be an event, an activist for my community came so much later. While all of this was happening to her as a child, Karen, as a coping strategy, turned to her schoolwork. It was her way of feeling like she had control over something. She didn't have many friends or a support group. So she was sometimes a little sad, but also playful and very adventurous. And so I ended up taking this class, didn't even know what entrepreneurship was. And my teacher was this one of those teachers who just sees potential in her students. And we had to come up with a business and I came up with a greeting card business because at the time um, I was like, oh, Hallmark cards are so generic. Like I can make personalized cards. And I wrote all these like poems inside. I had like eight lines and they were all based on feelings. So they were like love cards. They were regret cards. I didn't really think anything would come of it, but she submitted my application to this entrepreneurship camp that summer. I was 16 and I got in. And it was at the College of Charleston, which is like the local university. It was a camp sponsored by Yes Carolina and the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which is a nonprofit, provides entrepreneurial education in low-income cities in the U.S. At this camp, I met all these other entrepreneurs from around the state. And I didn't really, you know, I didn't know what VCs were. I didn't know what pitching was. I was just like, oh, this is fun. I really, really like want to go back to those times because there's a freedom by which you're playing and experimenting and creating. I love hearing her describe that freedom to explore and create when she first started in entrepreneurship. She makes it sound so much fun. She was such a natural. This greeting cards business ended up winning the camp competition, which then gave her $500 and the opportunity to pitch and share her business around the local Charleston district. I remember one event I went to where I was pitching the mayor of Charleston, which at the time was like literally the biggest person in my world. And I got up there and I looked out and there was this moment of quiet. And that is the moment I first felt powerful because everyone was listening to me and I could capture their attention with my voice. I think that is so important for a young person to have because that is a moment I discovered I had agency. And it was magic. I like wasn't nervous, didn't have any stage fright. It just came, and I've, since then, I've never had a fear of public speaking, because I think that was, like, the scariest thing I could have done at age Were 16. Were you nervous? 
I expected to feel nervous, but instead I felt my own power. And that changed everything for me. That is such a powerful experience to have at such a young age, especially in a place where she always felt so caught in between. Yeah, and it gave her a confidence that Karen says she still carries to this day. But despite this early success in high school with her business skills, behind the scenes, Karen's family started going through a very tough time right as she was applying for college. In April, right after the acceptance letters came out, uh, my dad lost his job. It was 2008. It was a recession. And uh, it fundamentally changed the course of my life because I remember coming home. My dad was home early. And I just sat on the couch next to him and was like, hey, dad, like, why are you home early? He's, he was crying. I've never seen my dad cry. <laughs> he was just like, I like, you know, I got laid off. And it's still like really is emotional for me because my dad is like financially carried the family through. And with such a like steadfast, like true, like giving everything to the family, suddenly he... He lost that agency in himself. So to kind of see myself discover my agency and discovering it as I was growing up, but then to have this figure in my life lose it. He fell into a deep depression, um, and it required my mom to become the, bre- the, the breadwinner and to go back to work full time. My sister was also in college, and so it just became a very dire financial situation. And I remember the first thing my parents said was, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone at school. Don't tell any of your friends. You know, the, the, the keeping everything inside, right? But I was breaking apart. And I was at school, like, I would, ju- I would just, like, burst into tears. And my teachers finally were just, like, they called an intervention. They were just like, what's wrong? And I told them, and I was crying. And I was like, I need to not go to college. I need to stay at home and work and, like, support my family. I mean, I was a good student. And uh, arguably, they were like, you're crazy. <laughs> and I just remember my white teacher saying to me like what are you saying like you do not you are not responsible for your family's like financial situation like you need to go and live your own life and and I just remember like you don't understand what it's like to be Asian this is such a real challenge that many Asian Americans face being caught between their identities within their families and the world outside of their homes that they have to navigate each day It stems from very different mindsets that govern American versus Asian societies, individualistic versus collectivist societies. We've talked about those two very different mindsets that a lot of Asian Americans have to straddle. And for Karen, that meant deciding to go away to college despite feeling guilty for leaving her family and carrying the burden of having to support herself through college and beyond. She had a constant fear and worry that comes with financial instability and security, and it began to dictate how she lived her life. When it came to making decisions about her career, it often meant choosing the more financially secure job. After graduating from college, she swam between jobs in international development, investing, and the VC space. Her work as a VC took her to Asia, which opened her eyes to a whole new perspective of Asia and Asian Americans. I was investing in Asian entrepreneurs across 14 countries. I managed that region for a fund in Europe. I had an immense privilege to be able to travel, to be on the the ground and learn and be exposed to the variety of Asian nationalities within Asia. And we talk a lot about the disaggregation of Asian America, 
and uh, the deep inequalities that are within Asia and how we view people who are darker skin, lighter skin. Came back and I was like, okay, I'm back in the States. I've chosen to come back because I'm realized I'm much more American than I am Asian in terms of my belief system. And uh, I recognized that immediately when I was in Asia. The moment I started speaking, people were treating me as American, not as Asian. So I can really relate to what Karen experienced. I moved back to Shanghai right before I started high school and I felt very American. So when I went to local school in Shanghai, people in my class called me American girl. And I really didn't speak much Chinese. So it felt like I didn't quite belong there. But at the same time, I knew deep down I was also very Chinese. And I think it wasn't until later when I came back to the States for college and after college and I started working that I realized, hey, you know what? I can choose to embrace all aspects of both being Chinese and being American at the same time. I think it, it actually was sort of the opposite experience for me where I went to Asia and I was like, wow, I feel really proud of being Asian for the first time in my life because I'm meeting all these people who were similar to me. Karen was inspired when she came back from Asia. She wanted to find a creative way to really grow this in-between space that we think of as Asia America. And she did that by exploring a multitude of side projects. I promised myself that when I moved back, I would not complain about the tension and the in-between, but actually really work proactively on creating something beautiful out of that experience. And I, I tried a lot of things. I had like, I, I did a dinner series on diversity and inclusion. I uh, noticed there weren't many Asians present in that space in San Francisco. So I was like, huh. And then I uh, was like, oh, like and part of it is Asian American culture just isn't something anyone's proud of. Like, it's just not cool. <laughs> I started this online dumpling, on-demand dumpling company called Prosperous. And <laughs> I was literally making dumplings in my kitchen. I was like, okay, so I learned some stuff about this, but Asian food was getting really popular. So I was like, okay, let me think about making like an Asian food content and marketplace. So basically, Karen tried a lot of side projects. After the food stuff, she pivoted to a project called Disorient, which was a storytelling project that profiled immigrant creators. All of this on top of her full-time job, which she kept to keep herself financially afloat in San Francisco. Was it crazy for me to be doing like seven side projects at the same time? Yeah, don't recommend it. I was such in an exploration phase. I was like, I need to know what people's experience of Asian America is enough to feel confident in building the right intervention or the right solution. And I just didn't assume that I knew. So I, I studied for like two years until I arrived at the cosmos. And I was grappling with my own notions of entrepreneurship at the time, right? Like, I believe I have this agency, but I only want to use it if it's useful for someone else. Like, I don't care about the fame. So then it became really important for me to actually do the homework and not just create something to create something. So after all these starts and stops over two years, Karen's experimentation with various Asian American community projects culminated in a meeting with a rather serendipitous connection in New York. This is a very millennial love story. So we were both working on storytelling projects. She's like, you two should meet in New York. And so we met and, you know, by then I'd had a lot of conversations with Asian Americans. I'd done like over 100 interviews with different Asian Americans. So I was like, OK, like this is probably not going to amount to anything, but I want to meet and hear their story. And so um, 
having low expectations. Um, I we just started talking and we started I sharing her experience, my experience in the accelerator, and we were just like, why isn't there anything for Asian women? Like, and I I honestly didn't think it would happen because I at that point I'd had so many starts and stops with different side projects that I kind of like given up on anything working. And that was also a moment of self-doubt where I was like, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just bad at this and I should stop. But um, Cassandra came through. Like Cassandra and I, I think, are both just like extremely like Google Doc, Google Calendar oriented people. And we started a working doc and we wrote a Medium post. Uh, so I was like, that's how you launch things in 2017. And people wrote in. Like people, um, hundreds of women wrote in. We're like, oh, wow, like this is, this is something. That something led to a retreat in Seattle where they expounded on the hundreds of responses they received to the question posed in their Medium post. What does it look like for Asian women to flourish and thrive? We had 20 women show up, didn't have a name. Didn't, they just kind of knew who we were from the internet. And we spent three days together. And these ended up being women who um, are doing amazing, incredible ventures in the Asian American space today. Um, and it was so nourishing. I think we were all felt so lonely in our journeys, not just as entrepreneurs, but as being Asian women and yet not being able to articulate what that gap felt like until we were all together. There were tears. There was like so much emotion. And I was just like, if this happened, I bet there are so many more women out there who have a similar experience. And like, I want to help them. And, um, we, launched the Cosmos uh, a month and a half later. Despite how smooth everything seemed from the outside, Karen says she was actually struggling to keep it all together at the retreat. The burnout and stress of planning the retreat had caught up with her. And so the day after the retreat in Seattle, she took a two-month medical leave from her job to take care of her mental health. And one month later, she was officially diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Wow, that's a lot to handle all at once. It is. But Karen actually saw her struggle with mental health as an even stronger reason to push forward with the cosmos. It was an obstacle worth overcoming. I, I didn't necessarily share this with many people. My family didn't know. And I adopted a routine of going to therapy, going to yoga, journaling, morning pages, and um, working through my depression and, and anxiety. And I'd never been diagnosed. And so to actually receive the diagnosis was somewhat liberating because I finally could put a name to everyone's like, why would you start something when you were just like in this like really dark mental space? And it was because when I first met my therapist and I was in tears, I was you know, telling her about all the emotional, physical uh, abuse and trauma I experienced growing up. And she looked at me and she was like, Karen, I know you're gonna be okay. And I know that because more than half of my clients are Asian women like you, and they have made it through this journey that you're about to go on. And I think she was telling me that to say like, you're not alone. And I was like, I don't wanna go through this alone. And it was, even in therapy, it's like a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your therapist, right? but it's still very isolating because you can't really talk about it. And so I just needed to know that I wasn't the only Asian woman with a mental health condition and who had suffered abuse and trauma and then survived and wants to be like flourishing. And the Cosmos 
became a space where we met a lot of these women. We created space for a lot of these stories to be shared. Often the first time anyone had shared like a mental health story. Um, I questioned whether I should work on the cosmos, like almost all the time. <laughs> and cause I was like, I am not mentally there all the time. Like I'm struggling, but actually having a company where you can admit that openly. And that's the relationship Cassandra and I have a situation we have on our team and in our community game changer. Like I can't share this in my work environment, my day job environment today. Yeah. But I can share that in the cosmos. And I'm like, what if, what if we can create this thing where this becomes the norm? People don't have to be ashamed, don't have to be judged, don't have to feel like they can't work because they're dealing with a mental health condition. And it shapes the principles by which we found and founded and operate the cosmos. Beyond mental health, Karen also wants the cosmos to foster greater financial knowledge for its community members. Having experienced her own struggles with financial instability, Karen knows that in order to be financially stable and independent, Asian women need to become more empowered. We, we have real struggles in our community with regards to financial knowledge. And this is something we've heard through the workshops that we do. And I remember the, the one we did in Seattle, I just went around the room and I asked everyone, I was like, if you are getting any financial knowledge and you feel that's adequate, universally, no. B is like, if you do have financial knowledge, who do you get it from? And they were all said like the men in their lives, boyfriends, friends, brothers. And it really has illuminated a gap in how our community as Asian women is not empowered to own and feel empowered over our financial situation. I think what's often missing from that narrative is the fact that women from people of color communities and immigrant communities don't have reserves of cash from our families or even from ourselves. We're usually the first ones to have like the income levels that we do. And then that money is, A, we don't know how to manage it well, and then we're supporting our families, right? Yeah. And the trade-off is our own dreams. I love that Karen brings up the financial empowerment element in relation to mental health. The constant hustling to support ourselves and our families really plays a large factor in our mental health, especially for Asian Americans whose parents are immigrants who don't really know the systems here. For example, like opening a bank account or having a savings account, maybe things that they have to teach themselves. Exactly. So Karen and Cassandra are building through the cosmos, a community to elevate the health and well-being of Asian women. What does true health and well-being look like to them? When I asked this question to Karen, she had two answers. The first is a community, which is basically what the cosmos has already been doing, supporting their growing community through events and meetups to talk freely about mental health. And the second is something they call wellness confidence. Karen says they are currently working on a product that will bring mental health experts to Asian American women, as well as a network of Asian American practitioners. Ultimately, it all goes back to normalizing the way we talk about mental health. In my own journey to, to understand my mental and physical health, I've gone to like so many different doctors and I'm like going from one end of the city to the other, but I still feel like the moment I walk into my work environment, I can't think about that. And there's like a wellness room, right? But like, there's nothing in that wellness room but a chair. And so this is actually the way, the cultural norms of how we work. And it's all about thinking about how wellness is trending and thinking about how Asian American culture could be something that we authentically create and experience. 
not just for ourselves, but I think for other people, other communities to experience our culture and for it to be welcoming. I really love that Karen wants to reach across the aisle and ultimately extend beyond Asian Americans. As Audrey Lord famously said, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And I think that speaks to something that Karen stands by wholeheartedly um, for what she's creating at the Cosmos. I want to go back to the point you've brought up about supporting other communities of color. And we've been questioning a lot, like, how do we do that authentically and meaningfully as a cosmos? I think we're in this world post-social media where the loneliness, the sense of confrontation among communities is magnified by all these online interactions that tend to be super toxic. And so it's like, how do we reverse that? How do we provide a counterpoint to that? And the most magical thing like we've heard from the community is just like when they experience that support. Because it is not an assumed truth. Again, like just like we said, like it's not assumed that every Asian woman believes she has a voice that matters. It's not assumed that every Asian woman has ever felt supported by her community or by any other community. It's like often the first time people have experienced community. Yeah. And so like that is that is what we need to focus on, creating enabling for as many people in the world as we can. Through all of this work, Karen continues pushing forward with her own mental health. It seems like she's got quite a routine for herself, taking care of her physical body through stretching and yoga to reclaim her mind and body as her own. She's also really big on the gratitude. I use the five-minute gratitude journal. It's on Amazon, like $22. Kind of expensive for a notebook, but totally worth it because... I wasn't very regimented about the gratitude until I got the notebook. And I was like, not a believer in the gratitude stuff when I started therapy. But now that I've done it for over a month, like consistently, I'm like, oh, like your mood actually changes when you go to bed feeling grateful for who you are and what you've completed that day. It's certainly easier said than done, but... It's so important for us all to do, especially as women. There is always the expectation to take care of other people. And a lot of times we put others before ourselves, which sometimes comes at a cost. Even though I have so many flaws and even though I have struggled with depression and anxiety, even though I question myself, that confidence in my agency like, is unshaken. And it, it's a bit contradictory, right? Especially when I'm in mental health spaces And it's like, oh, if you're depressed, you're incapable or like you can't, you don't believe in yourself or you have, there's a lot of like the symptomatic depression looks like X. And I understand where that narrative can come from. I also want to provide a narrative of depression, anxiety that isn't just like, oh, this person's super sad and incapable. It's like you can function with mental illness. You can actually be a creator, an entrepreneur whoever you want to be. And that is not a a narrative that I think is still presented in a lot of uh, medical environments. So I always want to share that because um, those those almost contradictory elements are part of my narrative and part of how I see myself. And I realized that I don't have anything to prove to anyone but myself. And it doesn't matter who kind of the audience is. Like I know inherently that I can capture their attention and use that for good. And that is, as I've met more women in the Asian community and other communities of color, that is not an assumption that all of us carry inside. She may call it contradictory, but Karen stands confidently in her vulnerability. And that's simply being herself. It's what she and her co-founder Cassandra are doing with the cosmos, simply allowing women to be themselves. 
And in this day and age, what a revolutionary act. They are breaking the narrative of Asian women as quiet caregivers, breaking the narrative of mental health as debilitating, and flipping these assumptions completely on their heads. Karen Shore is not afraid to rock the boat. Trust in your voice and to share your voice in a world where you've been silenced historically or today. He's to defy the odds and expectations that are so easy for yourself to succumb to when you're feeling overwhelmed or when I'm feeling overwhelmed. And to always come back into your own power because that is the source of how you're going to get the energy to rock the boat is like your own agency. Thank you, Karen, for a great conversation. We speak with Cassandra Lamb, the other half of the Cosmos, in a future episode. As we mentioned, the Cosmos is currently in the process of launching a membership for Asian women that they call Wellness Confidence. The product launches this winter. If you're interested in learning more, sign up on their website, jointhecosmos.com, and we'll include more relevant links in the show notes. Thanks to our writer, Rochelle Kwan, for writing this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Rock the Boat. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes and help spread the word about the podcast. We really appreciate your help. Kelsa Lim is our assistant producer. Debbie Wong and Kim Hernandez are our social media coordinators. And Rachel Chu is our sound editor. Be sure to follow us on social media at Rock the Boat NYC.